out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastor. This is the C86 Show. Another award-worthy program put together just for you, dear listener. This week, the special guest is going to be Simon Reynolds, author of various books, including this latest one that's come out on paperback, Shock and All, Glam Rock and Its Legacy. So I caught up with Simon, um, that was a few years ago now actually, but I thought I'd go through the archives and uh, put these together just because I might have missed them or you might have missed them. And um, yes, break them up into a few sections and put them out for your delight. So to get the ball on the road, I think we'll play some music and then the first part of our interest in chat. This is going to be T-Rex and Spaceball Ricochet. Just a man Understand the wind And all the things That make the children cry With my last paw I know I'm small But I enjoy living anyway Book after book Looked every time the writer talks to me like a friend. What can I do with just living a zoo? All I do is play the space ball ricochet. Deep in my heart, there's a house that can hold. Just about all the use I bought a car It was old but kind I gave it my mind and it disappeared I love a girl She is a changeless angel She's a city It's a pity that I'm like me, yeah how can I live when all I do is play the space for ricochet? I'm just a man. I understand the wind in all the things that make the children cry. With my lips, Paul. But I enjoy living anyway, yes, do Deep in my heart There's a house that can hold just about all of you How can I live when all I do is play The space for ricochet Oh baby, the space ball ricochet Oh mama, the space ball Oh, do the space ball 
Nice hum at the end, but amazing song. That is T-Rex with a track titled Spaceball Ricochet. Hello, this is David Eastall, the C86 show, always bringing you the finest in indie pop, but also occasionally doing specials. This is a one, uh, this is one that I did with the author, Simon Reynolds, who just brought out the paperback of Shock and Awe, Glam Rock and its a Legacy. Simon, Mr. Reynolds to his... Um, nearest and dearest uh, was also the author of a book titled rip it up and start again that we all loved and also energy flash a journey through race music rave music and dance culture anyway let's have the first part of this interview um yeah this is where i've been talking a little bit about time differences between the uk and la which was fascinating we edited that bit out and then i started to talk about the world that is or was glam rock and this was simon's response simon can you enlighten us about glam rock? Glam is basically um, a mostly British phenomenon um, of groups who, are after a period when rock had kind of got very serious and had kind of neglected the whole aspect to do with image and putting on a show, uh, in, in this is like the late 60s, very early 70s, when there was a lot of people wearing denim and, and playing very long guitar solos and and sort of just standing statically on stage, focused very much on musicianship uh, and, and, and sort of serious concept albums and all that kind of stuff. That was what happened in the late 60s. And it kind of left this gap for something that was for teenagers and that had sort of, you know, great clothes and extravagant theatrical gestures and a sense of pop about it, but also a sense of mischief and... Uh, gender bending ambiguity and all the things that glam provided. So it started with really started with Mark Bolan and T-Rex and then Bowie sort of changed his style a bit and came in and kind of kind of took it away from Bolan in the sense of making it very sort of intellectually high powered and artistic in a way that Mark Bolan as great as he was could never quite do. And then you had Roxy Music and then a lot of other bands who had just sort of been around trying to be successful and, and failing and they sort of latched onto it uh, like Slade, The Sweet, um, um, Gary Glitter, who'd been trying to be a star yes. since since before the Beatles. He had actually launched his career since before the Beatles. Um, so it was, you know, it was this moment, actually the, one of the ironies of glam rock is that a lot of the, a lot of the, the stars for the first time were quite a bit older than their fans. Before in the 60s, most groups were only, you know, most groups were very, very young. Many of the, the glam people like Bolan and Bowie had been trying for years to be stars and they tried all these different things. And they were in some ways 60s people who finally had this moment in the 70s. So, yeah, it was it was like an Im- image conscious, almost sh- showbiz version of rock music. Yes. Uh, but with a great sense of pop about it, you know, it was a return to two minute songs, great hooks, uh, you know, rock and roll you could dance to, I think is another important yes. thing. 
Well, it was interesting because, in a way, they were, you couldn't have got two more different sort of scenes. You know, you had the 60s, which had become sort of so sort of serious and so sort of, um, I don't know, slightly pretentious because you had, the, you know, you had the psychedelic period, you had Woodstock, you had all that counterculture ethos. And obviously when the 70s appeared, especially those artists from the early 70s, like you just mentioned, they must have looked so sort of frivolous and sort of throwaway and 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 sort of disregarding the sort of seriousness of of kind of their the, the sort of the generation that had gone before them. Yes, I mean, I, I I think there was quite a lot of suspicion from sort of older music fans. A sort of you know, uh, I often think of of glam as being like the, the revenge of the younger brothers and sisters on their older brothers and sisters who were, you know, playing them Eric Clapton records and saying, this is proper music and this is great guitar playing. They were playing, you know, concert albums and, and all this stuff that sort of hung, kind of hanging on from the 60s. All these sort of, you know, the Allman Brothers with their jams that went on, started on side three and yeah. continued on side four of the double album, you know, like a 40-minute jam. You know, you know, this stuff was felt to be like this oppressive uh over over you know there's too much reverence towards the 60s and suddenly they the younger kids see something of their own which is this sort of defiantly frivolous and um and decadent decadent was a big word at the time as an aspirational thing yeah uh, partly influenced by the movie cabaret where um liza minnelli's character says uh divine decadence darling and it was the very 70s thing of like you know the, the world is ending um could be nuclear war, environmental collapse. We may only have a few years to go, but let's just live it up, you know, a sort of Weimar Republic. Um, anything goes, nothing is forbidden kind of spirit of decadence. That was something that uh, Bowie, especially Lou Reed, um, Alice Cooper, all these artists uh, played up the idea that, you know, we're not going to save the world like this, the hippies thought they were going to change the world. We're just going to have a wild time as the, as the, as the Titanic sinks, we're going to party as it goes under the waves, you know. Well, I so suppose, the, yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, I suppose I find it quite interesting because having sort of grown up at that sort of period of being obsessed with Tom Pops in the early 70s and sort of getting obsessed with David Bowie when I first saw him do Space Oddity, I sort of realised the 70s had a lot of bad press for an awful long time. And it's t- it took a while before people started to re-look at it again, because the 60s just all seemed such a cool decade. And the 70s mm-hmm. just looked a bit like a, a bit of a mess, really. But then people started pulling bits apart. And, and because, you know, glam, as you said, the artists that you often mention are the cool ones and not the sort of ones who sort of jumped on the sort of the, the glitter makeup sort of bandwagon, like Gary Glitter, The Sweet, and Emmy Slade. And when you see sort of even wizard you know you think my god what are they doing you know this is a disaster mm-hmm. you know i mean it was quite interesting but then you had you know black sabbath and led zeppelin coming along and and sort of soon after motorhead and then you had you know around that 70s sort of fire period you had the dam the sex pistols and the punk period sort of moving as well so i, I suppose i just found the 70s was a much more complex to sort of analyze than the 60s which was quite straightforward really yeah i mean i think uh 60s kind of has sort of had this kind of dominant thing on pop history because it was so exciting and 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 you can boil it down to a few simple images you know carnaby street and people grooving in little 
mod clubs and the Who smashing their guitars and the Beatles and the Stones. It's quite easy to sort of get a picture of the 60s uh, in your head. And then you have hippies and, and Woodstock and um, punk is just, um, 70s had just so many different things going on in it from the prog rockers to the to the glam people to disco and and, uh, and soul music was great in the 70s. There was punk, there was pub rock, there was, you know, all these different trends and, and fads and um uh, it's it's hard to get one fix image you know what is the image that defines the 70s is it bowie's haircut is it punk with its safety pin through its nose is it you know is it disco you know um i think for that reason 70s although it has been rediscovered a lot there's still a lot of mysteries about the 70s and still a lot of things to rediscover and, and in my glam book i was trying to Talk about the well-known glam people, but also some that have been forgotten a bit, but were huge at the time, like Cockney Rebel were like a huge band. Steve Harley is a charismatic, yes. not exactly super nice, but very charismatic figure. Um, uh, you know, Sparks were an amazing, strange band. American, but only successful really in, in the UK. Uh, with a very indelible image that, you know, anyone who was a kid at that time remembers of the... Ron Mayer with his uh, with his strange Hitler moustache, you know, and the, and the strange eerie look in his eyes. He played the keyboards. There were so many odd, oddball little bands that, um, uh, you know, I have, have a lot on Bowie and a lot on Mark Bowen, but I wanted to, you know, remember some of these other these other figures. Alice Cooper, I think, gets forgotten a bit, although at the time he was considered incredibly shocking and, and almost like, you know, punk rock ahead of schedule. He was considered this corrupting force on kids and this sort of demonic figure leading the kids astray. Well, I can remember when the, the sort of excitement and the sort of horror at the same time of uh, schools out, I think that sort of shocked parents yeah. so much, actually, which was quite interesting. But the other thing about the 70s and, and the sort of the glam background was obviously hard to sort of imagine it now, but there was the political upheaval and the sort of the lack of kind of a strong government for most of the 70s, because it seemed to be like people coming in and out of number 10 at an incredible sort of... Uh, rate and nobody seemed to get a grip on it and there was obviously the unions and there was the IRA as well so obviously the 70s had that whole background as well as this kind of like sort of glitter as well as you know then heavy metal then prog rock and then you had punk as well so I sort of found you know looking back on it because obviously at the time you know I was 10 I didn't sort of <laughs> understand this kind mm. of political complexity but you sort of realize that the the sort of 60s you had you know you never had it so good and there was sort of fantastic economic sort of um I suppose mm. wealth and you know people just had a job if they wanted a job whereas then in the 70s it was everything became much more of a struggle and also I think that the interesting thing with the 70s it kind of as youth culture goes you had you know you had Woodstock which was kind of okay then you had Alt Altamont which didn't go to terribly well then you had the death of like Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin so you know for that generation who'd grown up throughout the sort of mid 60s to the end I think they must have been absolutely shattered by the time that sort of the glam period had started as well yeah I think there was a lot of gloom I think 1970 especially seemed a very depressing year you know the Vietnam War was still going on and showed no signs of ending and there were these huge protests I think that was the year the students were killed you know by the state troopers at the university in Ohio um you had the deaths you mentioned a lot of big bands also split up you know the kind of death in a way the splitting up of these major bands like the beatles uh you had a lot of sort of 
glum solo albums came out and sort of very quiet, introspective, inward music, you know. Um, and so people were looking for something to sort of escape in a way. And a lot of metaphor, a lot of analogies were made at that time between the 70s and the 30s. And, and you know, uh, in the 30s, there was a lot of razzle dazzle and Busby Berkeley movies to escape. Yes. Uh, escape from the depression and, and, and the misery and the fear of encroaching fascism. And people said, well, 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 70s is the same. You know, there was there was a lot of talk in the UK of, of crisis. Crisis was the word on the lips. And, and people thought, would, you know, would would British democracy survive? Would there be a, a military coup, you know, to um, to restore order and, 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 and crush the unions? Um, the, the right wing people were thought, you know, this, this, the Soviet Union was behind uh, a lot of things going on. Uh, and Harold Wilson was a was a was a Soviet mole. <laughs> you know, so there was this paranoia on every side and a feeling that everything was collapsing. And so I think Glam was like this, this was this escape from um, this misery. Although in Bowie's lyrics, certainly, there's a lot of, you know, as though as much as he's trying to escape into sort of outer space and fantasy, all the sort of environmental fears and fears of fascism are actually popping up in the songs as well. You know, so it's sort of like it's escaping, but it's also recognizing mm. the sense of crisis and collapse that, that was a, you know, a, a very widespread feeling at the time. Well, I suppose it was quite interesting because you did have sort of Boland, who was there just before Bowie, and then sort of a couple of weeks ago there was quite a good documentary on Boland because obviously it was the anniversary of him dying in '77, and it was kind. Mm. Of, it was what was so fascinating was how quickly Boland had sort of come and gone. You know, I mean, obviously he had all the '60s stuff that, you know, is 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 kind of remembered by some of his kind of hardcore fans, but then his real sort of pop stuff didn't last for a, more than a couple of years before he was he was kind of almost washed up. And I suppose it sort of made one realise the kind of genius that was David Bowie even more be, for the fact that he was able, or not just able, but decided he really needed to change his image. And, you know, mm. from the Ziggy Stardust, though he did have his little bit of folky stuff before that, you know, the, to the Aladdin saying, to the sort of, the thin white duke mm. and the and the young Americans. So I suppose Bowie, it was kind of interesting because I suppose he's always had that glam, but he sort of took it into another region. And he also, he did sort of pay reference to that sort of, sort of 1930s Germany as well, you know, and especially because mm. he moved to Berlin. So, I mean, you, I suppose it's people, well, is Bowie the person that you look at as, as the man who really defined the sort of glam period? Um, I think he has become that. I mean, at the time he... At the time, he didn't sell nearly as many records as Mark Bolan and, or indeed Slade or the Sweet. You know, that, uh, those groups were the ones who had sort of number one and number two hits. Bowie sold albums, and he was he was in some ways he was sort of in some ways a, a, a less pop than the other people. His he didn't have that many big pop hits. If you actually look at his chart record his first number one was when space oddity was reissued in 1975 it was reissued and, and it finally got to number one um but he had the credibility and he had the being taken serious he kind of that was the edge he had over Bolan. the other thing the other reason why bowie did was able to thrive and survive longer than Bolan was that um bowie was very good at collaborating and he always picked really good partners like Mick Ronson you know who was a great musical partner and it had a lot to do with arranging the sound of the classic records 
later he had a great sort of team of people um, centered around this guitarist Carlos Alomar and he worked with Brian Eno. Bolan's band were just guys, you know, who worked for him. He didn't have a creative foil in, in his setup. Um, and he just ran out of, you know, it's very hard, especially if you're like constantly touring and in the uh, in the sort of red hot eye of fame, you know, uh, people looking at you all the time. It's very hard to keep renewing yourself creatively if you don't have anyone else to lean on. Um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why the Beatles lasted so long as it was Lennon and McCartney. And they had another good songwriter in the band, George Harrison. They had more resources. Bolan just had himself. Yes. Whereas Bowie was always brilliant at synergizing with another creative person. Um, if you look at all, all through his career, he's, he's working with, well, and he works with visual people and clothes people. And, 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 um, uh, but musically, he has these great partners like Mick Ronson, Brian Eno, you know, other people later on. So I think that's one of the reasons Bowie was able, he also read a lot more than Bowie, uh, than Bolan did. He kind of read all these books and he, devoured all kinds of other forms of culture and that sort of enriched what he was doing you know you know he was ravenous for intellectual artistic inspiration Bowie. well it's interesting sort of having been obsessed with bowie for so long in my life you know from being my first single on the album and all that stuff and then sort of you know watching various documentaries on mark boland which and you could see that he was just much more obsessed with the idea of fame a bit like I mean, he obviously wrote some fantastic songs, but at the same time, he was almost like somebody who wanted to get onto the X Factor, whereas Bowie, you know, I went to the exhibition when they were having the auction of his, kind of a lot of his artwork at Sotheby's. And again, you know, over the last couple of years because of his death, you know, there's been a lot more stuff written about him. And also one became aware that, you know, he was obsessed with art and culture and was quite frustrated. And he, and there's that famous interview where some, you know, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm not a rock star. I don't want to be a rock star. I want to be an artist or some such kind of mm. phrase that he used. Whereas Mark Boland just wanted to be famous and sort of a bit of a dandy walking up and down the high street, really. So I think there was, there was that, that which kind of, I think is the difference because, because I do, I do a sort of a, a, a a weekly show called the C86 show. So I've been interviewing all these bands from the 80s and I realise that most bands have a almost to the month a five-year longevity. You know, they get together, do the single, do an album, do the tour. That was In those days, it was the John Peel session. And by the time of the second album and possibly after doing America, which always seemed to finish every band, you know, that was it, you know, five years and that was their lot. And, you know, and they went, so, but there was only a couple of artists who managed to keep that, you know, and I often think of people like Depeche Mode, who I'm not a huge fan of, but I realise they keep going. People like Liebach as well, who's, you know, again, another band who are just all, almost more obsessed with art than they are with wanting to be pop stars. Yeah, I think I don't think you can underestimate Bowie's interest in being famous, though. <laughs> um, and you actually, you know, he had a love-hate relationship with fame. I think, as you can see by a song like "Fame," which is presents it as kind of like agony and this sort of hell zone in which you're lost, which is full of ego games with other stars and and um, you know someone losing all sense of themselves, um, becoming corrupted by fame. Um, I think he kind of, if you look at his career, he kind of puts tons of energy in becoming famous and then almost as soon as he gets it it kind of does his head in and he retreats and withdraws the whole berlin phase where he he sort of left la and and moved to berlin and tried to sort of blend into the surroundings and i think he even grew a beard 
yes. briefly. <laughs> but Berlin has also, also, you know, left him alone. They, you know, they, they, they were too cool to sort of keep pestering him and saying, oh, Bowie, uh, it's great to see you on, on, our, on our Strasser walking yes. around. Uh, they, um, you know, he's able to live anonymously and, and, you know, become, you know, become almost like a Brian Eno figure himself and like just making experimental sounds. But he always loved being in the public eye and he, and he came back and tried again with Ashes to Ashes and that was another huge hit and, and then and then, then he did a big breakthrough in America with with uh, Modern Love and Let's Dance and, you know, he loved, he loved being famous. He hated being famous at the same time. I think that's the tension that makes his work so interesting yes um, yeah Bonham was a bit of a slut for fame I think you know but again he didn't you know I don't think he would have gone on the X Factor he always kept something kind of kooky about his lyrics yes. they were always a bit kind of you could see the hippie in them even when he was like on top of the pops he, he was singing about riding a white swan you know or it wasn't your standard you, you know he didn't do the didn't go the Osmonds route or, or just be a straightforward Bay City Rollers type teeny bop star he his lyrics always had a lot of wit and, and strange, trippy, psychedelic kind of element to them. Yeah. Even when, you know, he's, he's got to number one sing about Metal Guru or, you know, or Children of the Revolution. You know, what's that? You know, that's not exactly, uh, you know, it's not David Cassidy, is it? It's, no. It's, it's something else. And that is the first part of my interview with Simon Reynolds, the author of the book, or several books, in fact. But this was in relation to one that just came out on Faber and Faber on in paperback, titled Shock and Awe, Glam Rock and Its Legacy. Um, this is David Eastall. I probably said that already. If you want to contact me, we love your messages, as long as they're kind of nice and positive and constructive. Otherwise, don't bother. But you can on Facebook Twitter and Instagram, just do at C86show. I will be there. It's always nice. And also, I've uh, been podcasting all my shows that I've been doing for several years now. Um, there's a lot of uh, stuff on Indie Pop, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Mixcloud. What more not to like? Um, just go to at C86show. It's all there. Anyway, look, we're going to have some music, then more quality chat. But this is going to be the uh, New York Dolls and Get Born.
Indeed, it is toe tapping. Indeed, but anyway, this is uh, that. That was the New York Dolls and the track titled "Jet Boy." This is going to be the second part of my interview with Simon Reynolds, as um, I had been babbling on about David Bowie and his kind of obsession with both fame and making it, and then reinventing himself and sometimes dropping record sales and then coming back again, as he did in the seventies, then during the eighties, and then Tin Machine. And this was Simon's response to that fascinating point that I was making. Simon, take it away. I think, you know, with someone like Bowie, it's um, it's like a question of, uh, they want to be famous, but they want to be famous for doing something good and interesting, you know. Like, he gets to number one with Ashes to Ashes, which is a song about death and depression, and, you know, Ashes to Ashes comes from the Book of Common Prayer. It's what you say when someone's being buried, you know. Ashes to ashes, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You know, so he wanted to be famous, but he didn't want to be famous just for anything. He wanted to be famous for doing strange, interesting, musically adventurous, philosophically profound things. And if you look at these his hit singles, they're all you know, they're they're all walking that line between pop and art, which is the most interesting line to me. It's like, what what can you do with fame? What can, how can you use fame and being in show business? to do something provocative, you know, and that's, I think that's the great British tradition, really, and you see it with the Beatles, you see it with Bowie and T-Rex, you see it with Roxy Music, you see it in the 80s with bands like The Associates and Depeche Mode, who you mentioned, and 
and the Smiths. You know, it's it's that line of we're pop and yet we are we are we are not disposable. We're not yes. inane. Yes. There's some there's some radical subversive mischief going on, or profundity profundity going on in the in the in the lyrics and the image. Yeah, and that kind of like it's, like you said as well. Pop. Oh, sorry, broke up a bit there. I was, I was going yeah, to say you also do you say power pop? No, it's um, it's art pop. Art pop, it's, yes, it, it is. It's it the is. art pop thing, isn't it? It's that it's that line that, that runs through everything that's interesting in British popular culture is, you know, right through to pulp and and you know, probably bands now that I can't think of. Um, it's walking that line between art and pop and and sort of something that is listened to by thousands or millions of people on on Radio One and. And, uh, you know, they rush out to Woolworths, at, you know, RIP, but in the old days to Woolworths and W.A. Smith to get the single. But each single is at once massively popular, yet it has some kind of edge to it, some kind of suggesting some other realm. That was the thing about Bowie was, you know, for, for his fans were introduced by him to Nietzsche and William Burroughs and all these, you know, all these amazing sort of cultural influences. Uh, he would reference them in his interviews, yes. and uh, it was like an education for a lot of fans. Yes, well, I suppose that was that was how I sort of discovered people like Jack Kerouac was because of Bo- Bowie would mention this, and then I'd have to go off and attempt to find and read, you know, on the road. So, yes, he did have a complexity, and and when you put this, you know, your book together, which is kind of an awesome piece, did it uh, did it come together quite smoothly, or was it quite a sort of a journey for yourself? What, the, the whole book? Yes. Um, uh, well, I, you know, I started out with a lot of ideas um, and some of those ideas, you know, um, remained confirmed by my researchers. But I found out a lot of stuff I didn't know and made a lot of connections that I hadn't thought of. Um, uh, you know, um, I thought I knew, you know, I thought I knew a, a lot about the era to start with, um, but when I did my researches and I went back to a lot of it was going back to the old music papers and, and reading them, getting a sense of the context of the times. And there's so much stuff that, you know, that explains, you know, even just looking at old music papers and look what other bands look like, you can see why the impact of these stars, how strikingly beautiful and and elegant and strange they looked. They just leap out of this this backdrop of these terrible, boring-looking bands with beards and denim, and uh, uh, and also you get a sense of how sort of drab, how drab and and restricted people's lives were. I mean, for instance, I read this. You know, one of the groups I read about is Mott the Hoople, and, and the singer Ian Hunter wrote a book um, called Diary of a Rockstar about being a rock star, a rock group trying to break America. And in it, he he mentions, you know, he just, he does a detailed description of a transatlantic flight, and he says, uh, for those of you who've never flown, and he realizes, oh, actually, in the 1970s, it was unusual to take an airplane. You had to be well off um, for the most part, or it was an except. You know, I didn't fly until I, I think, until I joined Melody Maker in the 80s. That was the first time I ever flew. Um, most people's horizons were incredibly restricted and confined. And pop music was was this lifeline to a magic world, and you accessed it only through a few little places, like the music papers that came out every week, 
uh, Top of the Pops and the Old Grey Whistle Test, you know, were on TV, and and the radio, but mostly at night with John Peel and things like that, was where the interesting, strange pop culture could be accessed. So that was something that, you know, when I did my researches, you know, I, I, I became aware of how vital pop music was and how little people had to, in terms of stimulation and sort of dazzle in their lives. And, and that's why being a fan of Roxy Music and going to a Roxy Music concert and dressing up for it was like this huge thing for Roxy Music fans. And and and, and Bowie's interviews in the Melody Maker were like, you know, this explosion of ideas and, and seemed to suggest a whole other world that maybe one day you could possibly dream of joining yourself you know so that was the interesting thing for me was was remembering how um how little people had and how much pop music meant to them yes in terms of in terms of some sense of possibility well it's interesting sometimes catching the old grey whistle test and seeing um I suppose those sort of serious bands that you sort of refer to as kind of the, those men with long beards kind of doing very serious guitar solos and thinking, wow, that's um, hard going. But also on a gender front, realising how blokey a lot of that music, the so-called serious music was. You think, you know, when mm. I watch things like that, I think young women stroke teenagers aren't really going to be jumping up and down too much to the seriousness of, you know, a twin guitar solo that goes on for five minutes. I mean, I know it's a, bit of a sweeping statement, but oh, a couple of years ago I was reading the John Peel book, Good Night and Good Riddance, where it was going through, I suppose, yeah, year by year, of the, the, the sort of music that he was playing. I realised that actually, like a lot of fans who had sort of grown up in the 60s, they did get lost in the early 70s, because I think people like John Peel and probably a lot of people dismissed the glam period. And so when they look back at their sort of musical taste, what they were listening to, they probably, there were a lot of bands which were sort of, you know, I can't remember because they were the sort of those kind of serious bands, you know, with men with long beards looking very sort of pained. And it wasn't until punk came along that people like John Peel sort of were able to sort of pick up and become relevant again. But during the early 70s, a lot of people, I think, became quite irrelevant. Mm, yeah, no, I, uh, I think that's true. I think John Peel did, you know, he did support Bowie and I, he gave Roxy Music their first session. And um, uh, I think he had a problem with Mark Bowen. He'd been very good friends with Mark Bowen when Mark Bowen was Tyrannosaurus Rex and had supported them hugely gave them sessions took them when he did dj gigs he tyrannosaurus rex supported him and and you know good money through doing gigs with him and when mark bowen went tried went famous he kind of dropped john peel so i think it was a bitter that might have colored john peel's feelings about glam a little bit um he felt you know personally betrayed and abandoned by this good friend when they were two little hippies talking about elves and, and and fairies and things like that um and, but um you know yeah i think um you're right there was the gap there was a gap in the market for pop music uh for teenagers and for particularly for young for young girls but, but just for teenagers generally um and but about a year before glam you know single sales were really depressed because no one was doing good singles and and uh uh, I think it took only a hundred thousand sales to get to number one, and then with T Rex, Slade, Sweet, Susie Quattro, uh, the singles thing exploded again. And it, you know, to get to number one, it was so competitive that to get to number one, 
uh, it took half a million sales to just get to number one. And the charts were full of these great singles. And the, the one thing that one thing I did discover when doing the book was um, how much the fact that it was danceable mattered. All those groups had great drum sounds and great sort of dominating beats that you could just groove to. Um, T-Rex was all about boogie, you know, you know, boogieing to this music. Um, Slade had this fantastic pounding drum sound, the suite as well. Um, and it was actually considered disco music. Um, before disco meant what we think of as disco, like, you know, chic and uh, black music, basically. Uh, discotheques in, in the UK, of which there were more and more by, the, you know, by the early 70s, they played glam. They played they played the, the teeny, the teeny bop kind of glam. You know, they played Gary Glitter, Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Part 1, uh, Part 2, broke as a disco song. It wasn't played on the radio. It was just amazing stomping beat. And so... It, one of the things that Glam brought back was was image and tunes, but it also brought back, you know, rock music you could dance to, which is something that had kind of, you know, that all those late 60s groups like um, uh, you know, uh, The Family and uh, I don't know, The well, Groundhogs. You know, yeah, so great I, bands, they were great bands, but they weren't exactly groups you could cut a rug to, you know. No. They, uh, they, they weren't like um, shake your booty kind of music. They were like get stoned and confront 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 the 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 profundity of the cosmos pink oh, floyd a, you know. <laughs> i was thinking of jethro tull in that uh, group as well who were sort of um yeah. terribly sort of earnest but sort of definitely didn't want to sort of be on top of the pops well they might have been but they definitely didn't want to be yeah doing a three minute little pop well, ditty a lot of those groups the progressive groups quite a few of them didn't even release singles that they they sort of turned they thought oh the pop charts are commercial and we're not commercial we're 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 mature artists doing doing art, yeah. We're doing like music you should take very seriously, and you should sit reverently in your living room, uh, smoking a spliff, optional, and, uh, and and you know listen on your hi-fi to these amazing sound tapestries we've woven, or on your headphones. And glam was about the jukebox, and it was about you know it sounded good in mono, it sounded good on a little tinny tan transistor on a, or a cheap dance set turntable it was you know back to you know a lot of progressive music the ideal consumer was a 21 year old student uh, with glam the ideal consumer was like a, a 13 year old girl and her friends dancing in their in the bedroom you know yes. so that was sort of like the shift it was like a power shift within music where it had it, it, gone to being student music rock had got become student music and then it went back to being kids music with glam but it's interesting because my brother was seven years older and he was into the um, the prog rock uh, period so he was perfect for that he, he ticks all the boxes mm. and he wouldn't have a single he would never buy a single because yeah. that was just like you know that was a sign that you were sort of I don't know not quite a loser but you know you weren't a serious person you weren't you weren't either yeah, yeah you weren't yeah. you you were you were to be slightly dismissed and it wasn't you know a double album with a gatefold sleeve and a Roger Dean poster on your wall you know was absolutely essential and if you then bought the sort of solo albums of Yes and Genesis you know you were definitely you know on that sort of cloud yeah. of enlightened music you know so the glam thing was just sneered at completely yeah, there was, there was, you know, there were these sort of stereotypes. I don't know if this is your brother, but, you know, there was the prog fan who had a, a sort of Afghan coat and long hair and would c come into school carrying 
you know, a copy of Bloodwind Pig or, or, <laughs> or, or something, you know, a Jethro Tai album under their arm and, and, and yeah, and Van de Graaff generator. And they would really sniff, they sniffed at even at things like Motown, Motown and sort of danceable black pop was considered um, lowly, you know, which is just seems, seems, so, seems so bizarre. But yeah, that was considered like trivial commercial pop music uh, and um, uh, serious music you know, it was double or triple albums and songs that went on, you know, song suites that went on for 17 minutes and went through 10 different changes and and maybe had the London Philharmonic on one track, you know. So it was, uh, you know, I, I liked quite a lot of that music, but there was definitely a gap yes. in the market for pop, you know, and that's what these people filled very cleverly and quickly. And... Well, all it took, Bo, Bo, you know, Bowen just changed his sound a bit from his hippie sound. He got his electric guitar in, he got in a drummer. And image-wise, all he really did was was put a bit of glitter on his cheeks and, and wear a frilly frilly scarf, you know, this sort of frilly neck thing. Um, and that was all it took for him to become a teen idol, you know, and people started screaming at him. Um and then Bowie obviously made it a lot more weirder, clothes-wise, and more and stranger with the hair. You know, the dyed, dyed orange, very unnatural colour, shade of orange hair, cut in an angular shape. You know, if you look back at some of the images, you think, well, it doesn't seem that shocking because we've seen so much since, like Marilyn Manson and Lady Gaga. But you have to sort of mentally adjust. Yes. You have to, you know, Alice Cooper seems quite tame now, but you have to try and think how people would have thought in 1971 when this guy with this black eye makeup is on top of the pops, waving a sword, you know, a fencing sword and looking very kind of demonic. And you have to sort of think, well, that would have been scary to parents and it would have been thrilling to kids as well. They would have thought he's this sort of scary demonic figure. You know, you see, he was very much sort of like Johnny Rotten ahead of schedule, I think, Alice Cooper. And that is going to be the last part of my interview with Simon Reynolds. Um, a huge thank you for giving me the time for that interview all the way from L.A. How totally exciting and showbiz. Anyway, this has been David Esau. This has been the C86 show. Um, if you want to contact me, it's always nice. But um, in the meantime, go out and buy the book Shock and All, Glam Rock and Its Legacy by Simon Reynolds. It's out now on Faber and Faber. And also another top tip, rip it up and start a game. Do check that out. It's going to um, blow your mind. Anyway, I'll leave you with another track. But in the meantime, have a great week. Yeah.